talk I'd like to give tonight would hopefully inspire you towards simplicity and towards uh, resting easefully in the flow of present time experiences. But the way I'm going to come about it might at first appear very complex. So uh, you might just want to take this in as sort of an impressionistic painting and not get too caught up in the details. But uh, it can be useful at times to look at what's actually happening in our practice. And if we do have some uh, noticing of what's actually happening in a particular minute or hour of practice, that can give us a little more feedback on, um, it's a little less confusing if we can notice which elements are arising in our practice. But luckily with this Samatha practice, the response is usually quite simple. It's uh, being a little bit more devoted towards the breath. So at least it's a simple direction, no matter what's arising, we orient ourselves towards our chosen place of resting attention. So uh, at least the, the practice is simple, but I'm gonna offer a little bit of a map that shows uh, some of the underpinnings of what helps us stabilize our minds and what are some of the obstacles And we heighten this again, just to bring a little bit more perspective in the swirl of what happens through the day as things come and go, as different states of mind and different energy levels come and go. Uh, It can be helpful to um, at least be somewhat aware, oh, I'm working with a very sleepy mind and I'm still going to track my breath, but I'm doing this from a sleepy mind or my mind is very bright and it's very steady. I'm still connecting to the breath, but the state of my heart and mind has changed. And these changes happen throughout the day. We can just barely influence them. So most of what we need is patience and faith uh, to keep pointing ourselves in a relaxed way to rest with breathing sensations or being aware of the breath. So this development of samadhi, this wholeness of attention, um, is really uh, a, well, I don't, you could say it's a, it's a battle or it's a tug of war between a, a collection of factors that make it hard to be present. So these are things that grow in our mind and they're natural inhabitants of the mind. We can learn to work with them but there are factors of our our mind that make it difficult to be present, and we all have them. And even the Buddha had them, even up to the night of his awakening. So uh, it's good to settle in with these factors, get to know them, and get to know how to work with them. And there's also a group of factors uh, that when they grow, they help stabilize our attention. So Nikki mentioned these last night, as the jhana factors. There are these five factors. And we cultivate them. Like uh, how many of you have grown a spring or summer garden? Okay. So you're now mind gardeners. And mind gardeners, you prepare the soil, you pluck the weeds, but you don't actually grow the vegetables. 
not one of you has grown a vegetable. You've created conditions and planted a seed. And then you tend the conditions, but nature grows these beautiful vegetables. And your job is to tend the conditions so that they have the optimal conditions to grow in. And that's true for our ability to absorb. That's true for our ability to stabilize our attention. It's not up to us to grab a hold of our attention and make it steady. That very attempt actually backfires and agitates us. So if you were a gardener and you tried to actually help the little plant grow, you'd break its leaves or you'd pick the fruit too soon or you would scream at it to grow. So what you need when you're a patient gardener is you get to really love the conditions. You get to love the soil. You get to love watering, when to water. You learn about the insects that eat the plants. So you protect the plants, but then you watch this miracle of these things growing. And that's what the practice of meditation is. We are not responsible for the fruit, but we can tend to the conditions as best we are able. And luckily we have, we have these beautiful seeds of concentration already in us. And they've already grown to some extent you, you couldn't be sane without some degree of concentration, of some degree of samadhi. So you use some degree of samadhi to drive uh, in a responsible way. And you know when you're being an irresponsible driver, when you're not using samadhi, when you're texting and driving, that's not samadhi. <laughs> um, but when you actually give your full attention to what you're doing, that's when you're using what we might call daily samadhi or ordinary samadhi. And so this is what we're cultivating. We're taking nine days here um, to cultivate those conditions and see if we can let this samadhi that we already have grow under, the, under supportive conditions. <coughs> so Nikki mentioned these five uh, factors that helps support a mind becoming very steady and intimate where it has chosen to point our attention. Um, their Pali names are Vitaka, which is the, um, it's the, uh, the applying of the mind towards what you're observing. So you could casually be aware of your breath. And a lot of times, if you're honest, you're, you're with your breath, but you've gotten so used to it that you're with a breath, but it's very easy for your mind to wander. And that's not your fault, you're not a bad meditator, that's true throughout the room, that most of the time we're kind of aware of the breath, just enough that we're aware of it, but not profoundly connected to it. So a passing thought can take our attention and wander with it. With this factor of the vitaka, there's more intentionality. It's not just contact with the breath, but it's uh, a clear receptivity. The next factor is vichara, and that was a sustained uh, attention on breath. But it's also a sustained interest, so you sustain that intimacy with vichara. This word piti, which is often translated as delight or bliss, um, I like to translate it personally as aliveness when my body or mind feel particularly alive versus uh, 
um, heavy or inert, but when there's a, a bubbly aliveness, that's uh, when PT is active in the body or in the mind. There's a factor of sukha, which is a much more sort of relaxed, uh, happy well-being. So PT is more of a lifting up, and uh, sukha is more of a settling. And we want to uh, welcome the blending of these two. When sukha and PT blend, you get the benefit of both. Too much of this sukha, and we tend to kind of uh, be happy but drowsy. Sort of, there's a breath. We don't actually care if there's a breath because finally we're content, and we just, we'll just take the sukha. You know, this is all I got. This is all I need. A little more PT, and there's a little more energy to engage the present moment. PT without sukha tends to be bubbly and hard to contain. So there's a lot of activity, and it's like a power ball, just a lot of balls bouncing around, but not any one uh, good connection. So it's good to have this combination of PT and sukha, this delightedness, but also this happy contentedness, and then to blend them so that you have this uh, balance between the two. And the last factor uh, is ekagata, which gets translated as one-pointedness. And I don't like the word point, like we don't like the word concentration. I used to try to get my mind to a point, and it was way too much effort to try to take this mental activity and corral it to one point. You can have ekagata that has a very wide frame. So if you often, if, you're, if you've walked up a mountain or a tall hill and you turn on, you take in the view and your mind settles and you have this one perspective, that's a very large frame, ekagata. That's a very large frame, one pointedness of mind. It doesn't have to be on a point, but it's not got two things that it's juggling. You're really absorbed in the view. We use these jhana factors all the time. And so it's actually part of the practice is getting familiar with them. So part of your nine days here is not to master them on day one and then ride the chariot to deep samadhi from then out. You will spend your lifetime getting to know these. And if you were to plant five vegetables, you would spend your lifetime getting to know them. People who grow roses don't get good at roses and then plateau. There's an infinite... Uh, sensitivity to what it's like to grow roses or tomatoes or the world's largest pumpkin, whatever your thing is, you get to know it and you keep getting to know these factors. So uh, your practice here would be well spent if you had the humble intention of just, I want to get to know these factors and move it from my head to my direct experience. I want to become more familiar with these five uh, absorption factors and learn how to cultivate them and learn how to blend them. And when these five factors arise, they arise together and they arise in a supportive fashion, it turns out that that's what being absorbed is like. And you have already had absorptions in your life, you just didn't stop to really appreciate them or count the number of factors that were making them happen. So if you're walking around here and you really take in uh, a turkey, or you really take in a lizard and it's still and you're still, and there's this awe, there's this delight. Wow, this lizard's really letting me look at it. It's got so much detail in it. That's PT. Your mind is taking interest, is taking heightened interest in an ordinary thing. 
It's not the thing that's giving you the interest. Your mind has taken interest. So you've experienced PT all the time. Maybe when you go to lunch and you see that there's a dessert, that's PT. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> that's often what people are reaching for when they drink caffeine is they want a little more PT swirling in their mind. I've gone to green tea, which is a little bit more like sukha. <laughs> I don't like the of coffee. I like, a, I like my PT sukha blend. But if you've sat here at sunset and you're like, my God, is this beautiful? It is always this beautiful, but the moment your mind says, my God, it's so beautiful, what a, what a place to be. That happy contentedness is sukha. It can be helpful to notice when these factors arise because then it moves from head theory down to, oh, I know, if, if that's sukha, oh, I love sukha. That's why we come to Spirit Rock because it's so beautiful. I love the beauty around here and the beauty gets inside me and then I reverberate with it and this happy contentedness is more available. That you may not have known it or maybe by now you do know this factor, but you're welcoming this absorption factor that's supportive for steadying your attention to have this underlying happy contentedness. When I was getting to know these factors, um, one time I uh, was dating somebody and she was going to a wedding and so it was up in Seattle and I flew up there with uh, a suit I hadn't worn in four years. <laughs> I don't wear suits very often. And luckily it didn't, it, it didn't need dry clean or anything. I was like, Phew. So I got up there and we went through the wedding and then as the wedding was over, we joined the uh, reception line and I was a little baffled. I was like, wow, I hardly know the people getting married, but because my girlfriend was in the reception line, I was just standing next to her. So I was started receiving 500 people I'd never met. I thought, well, what do I, how would I do this? And it's like, I'm going to use the jhana factors because I'm a Dharma nerd. <laughs> <laughs> so this is how they play out in everyday life and you can actually take note of them. So one thing I noticed, I was robotically just 500 people, 495, I was just counting down. So I could just go through emotions. I could really receive each person. Why don't I do that? Like, these are a whole bunch of people. Let me actively receive each person intentionally. So that's vitaka. When you actively receive one breath at a time, that's vitaka. You're already doing that. And you know the difference between when you're your mind is a little tired, you've asked it to be intended to the breath, but it's gotten just a little bored, so you're doing what you can, but it's not wholehearted receptivity. Vitaka is when your heart actually says, this one breath, I receive it. This next breath, I receive it. I receive it in, I receive it out. It's an intentional, clear receptivity. That's when vitaka is arising. And it's good to know when it's arising and when it's not arising. You get to know it and you can't demand it. It's not suddenly your servant you get to order around. But when you appreciate it, it tends to come more often. And when you get to understand, oh, I, this beautiful receptivity, I want to encourage this. I want to truly receive. So when I was in this uh, reception line after this wedding, I'm gonna receive each person and I thought, I can do better than receive them. Receive them, it's just like, hi, hi, hi. And I was like, okay. Receive and sustain. Hi, 
Good to shake your hand. Oh, you're a real person. I actually am holding your hand. Okay, next person. I receive you and I sustain my interest. That's vichara. That's ordinary vichara. You've been doing this your whole life. Anytime you connected and sustained your attention intentionally because you wanted not just to be casual and half-hearted, you wanted to be wholehearted, you connected and sustained. And I thought, okay, what other factors am I using in this reception line? It's like, well, PT, don't just like connect and sustain dutifully. Why don't you take interest? Well, this actually makes it easier to connect and sustain. Here's a whole human I've never met before and I'm at a wedding. What a weird circumstance. This is kind of interesting. And look how they dressed and look how they're greeting me. This person's full of smiles. This person's very serious. This person's spaced out. This person looks very anxious. This person obviously wants to get to the next person. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm, take, I'm taking novel interest. And that sense of novel curiosity, fresh curiosity. It's strange that the breath, which hasn't changed very much since you were born, some parts of the day is interesting and some parts of the day it is boring. It is so boring. The breath isn't changing, but your mind changes. And it's helpful to notice when PT is naturally arising and then to see if you can welcome it. You can't demand it, but you can welcome your mind to take interest in your breath. And then you're cultivating uh, the, the conditions under which PT can flourish. You're not blocking PT. I want to take interest in my breathing Sometimes you have to step away from the breath to re-encourage your interest. So when I was practicing as a monk, it was a long year and I lost interest many times. Sometimes I couldn't get interest in the breath. So I had to stop and reflect. These are beautiful conditions. I'm following the Buddha's teachings. I have past faith that this leads somewhere. I'm gonna take this brightness of faith and take interest again in my practice. And now that I've put some wood on the fire and blown on it, I got the fire up. It's like, yes, let's do this. As long as I'm here, let's do this wholeheartedly. So you can encourage your PT. You'll get frustrated if you demand it. Uh, And it tends not to respond much to demand, but it does respond if you know how to blow on the coals of your own interest and see if you can encourage yourself to take interest. Oh, I was taking interest in people, I was dutifully connecting, dutifully sustaining. And then there were 500 people. So I settled in. This is going slow because one of the people is really stopping and talking to everybody and that backs up everybody. So I've done my bit, I said hello, and then we're still staring at each other. And I've taken interest, but now it looks a little little weird that I'm studying them with interest. So I look away, they look away. It's like, I'm gonna come at this with such a more relaxed, tone. It's good to meet you. And they want to look away. That's fine. I'm not in a rush to get anywhere. This person, this moment is very satisfying. It's a long line. I'm not going to contemplate that. I'm just going to see if I can be contented right here, right now with this stream of people. It's the same with the breath. It's the same at a wedding. It's the same uh, in many parts of our lives. We actually settle in to pace ourselves. And we find that if I, I... choose the right attitude, I can actually change my frame of mind so that I can be restful and contented under these conditions. That actually is more of an option. PT is a little bit more fickle in my experience. 
uh, it comes and goes and it's a little more windy. It kind of comes and goes and then it may come again. But I actually have learned that I can cultivate sukha. I can cultivate happy contentedness. And it was surprising to me that after 10 years of doing Vipassana practice and wallowing in the first noble truth of suffering and getting quite good at intimacy with suffering, that in the same tribe of religious practitioners, there was this great celebration and cultivation of happy contentedness. And it's actually not the end goal, but it's a way of deepening intimacy and learning. And I've been practicing in a way that actually blocked my ability to be happy and contented. I accidentally went and worked with a teacher uh, who was not known for happy contentedness. His whole thing was that you aim and sustain uh, like your life depended on it, depended on it, and interest was not so important. Survival was important, and that was all about aiming and sustaining. And I got ferocious about aiming and sustaining, but there was a complete uh, desert of contentment. There was so much wrestling with my experience that I never felt very content. And if I did, I felt lazy for feeling content. And contentment meant I, I could try a little harder. I'll try so hard that I'm not content, and that shows this is the upper limit of my effort. And that actually got rewarded in some sort of slightly sadistic, masochistic uh, agreement that the misery was somehow celebrated. And I got to a, the second monastery, and they said, uh, and I, when I walked around, I first met the people, I was like, oh, these people are so happy and contented. They must be studying. There's no way that they're actual practitioners, because I've met practitioners, and they are miserable people. <laughs> But that shows how loyal they are to this Buddhist path that, yeah, the misery and I'm in it and I'm in it to win it and saying, oh, you're one of those hardcore Buddhists because you're so miserable most of the time. You're, you're really not running from misery. You really have gotten into the, the bath of dukkha and one day, one day we will both be free. But right now... All we do is beg for freedom, but there's a lot of misery. So when I was at the second monastery, I started realizing these people who really, they were, they had very sophisticated and ex experiences of their own hearts and minds. And they began giving me advice. And I was like, wow, that's really insightful. Maybe you are practitioners. And I got to talk to this Burmese nun who's one of the, um, the most, uh, one of the most celebrated yogis uh, maybe of our time on the planet. I don't know about other countries, but her capacity to go very deep into these absorptions was, uh, was, was profound at a young age. So I was telling her I was, I was a diehard with Vitaka Vichara and I couldn't get past that. And my practice had sort of ground to a kind of miserable plateau. And she said, I don't focus my attention until I'm content. And it's just one of those moments, like getting slapped across the face. And I was like, wow, you don't focus your mind until you're content. It's like, I would never focus my mind. I don't even know what contentment is like. like that's, <laughs> contentment and practice don't taste like the same thing. And she said, well, how could you be here at the monastery so that contentment was more likely? 
And that began a turning in my practice. And something that the teachers have been, it's like, have fun here, aim and sustain. Have fun here, aim and sustain. (laughs) But if you approach your day here in a way that's more likely to allow contentment to grow, then you're actually supporting samadhi and you end up supporting insight. So it can be informative. Uh, where, where could contentment be in this moment? Well, it's in town drinking a latte. Like, no, 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 here in this moment, <laughs> where is the contentment? It's like, well, I probably have to stop resenting my mind. And if I could kill, cool off a little bit, yeah, I'm a little bit more content. That's actually a support for absorption. And then this last one, ekagata, is um, could you let go and practice letting go of all the diversity of possibilities so that one thing could be enough for one moment? And it means going to the greatest buffet of life and only eating the kale. (laughs) It's not the worst, it's not the best, but it's just the kale. You just, you're just sustaining yourself on the breath. And the mind goes, but what about all the horrors and all the joys and all the things we could contemplate? I've got to negotiate a relationship to all of those to maximize my happiness. And there's a very radical thing, and it's so radical, it actually is the slowest one to evolve of all the jhana factors, is a reliance upon just one thing that just breathing is a solution to all your problems. Mind says, there's no way breathing solves all my problems, but if you act, the deeper you go into your breath, the fewer problems you have. And it's not because you're dissociated, you actually have a mind that doesn't create problems, that's not fractured by problems, that's resourced enough to take on challenges. And it takes some wisdom to coach yourself into this ekagata, into oneness, with one simple thing. I'm not sure if the generation in the room is right to get this quote, but uh, you got 99 problems, but the breath ain't one. (laughs) But people who laughed are probably from a certain age group. Anyways. So the breath ain't a problem. And that's what's so great about it, is that it doesn't create problems, it's not made of problems, it doesn't head towards problems. It's just the breath. So I just received an email, got a whole bunch of feedback on a program, and it was edgy to get this feedback. And I watched my mind going into some sorting out and trying to breathe with it. And I came and I was like, okay, I got breathing, but now I got problems. And I got to work out these problems. It's like, well, go to your breath. It's like, yeah, it's not going to solve these problems. It's like, it has in the past. And it's like, that's true. Let's just try that. Be with the breath. I got problems. Be with the breath. I got a problem. Be with the breath. Eh, I got a breath. And I came down my breath, I was like, you know, I actually don't have a problem. I'll work out whatever this complexity is, but it's better that I do it from a heart and a mind that knows how to rest in one thing and knows how to bring it down to something as simple as breathing. Then when I turn back towards life, it all it seems doable. If it's not doable, it's just not doable. But that mind isn't fractured and overstretched and then reactive. So eventually learning how to rest with one thing 
and let go of everything else is really what ends up supporting the deepest absorptions. It's helpful if what you're aiming your attention towards is someplace you want to go because it makes it easier to taste that one thing, like a flower or something beautiful or like your breath. If you have asthma or breathing problems, the breath itself may not be the best anchor because right away you're right next to a problem, you're right next to a difficulty. So if you have bronchial problems, it might be better to feel your breath at your nostrils or to um, feel your breath deeper in your belly. I used to have um, a lot of colds in my nose, so I'd be breathing through my mouth and it would be an unpleasant experience. So I would shift my attention down to my belly where there wasn't a problem. It's best if your anchor has that kind of soothing quality to it and the breath has that. So these are the five jhana factors. There are five challenges. I'm just gonna outline them that could get complicated if you're trying to hold five and five. The way that you solve these five problems is by developing the five jhana factors. As they grow, they tend to block out the possibility of these five challenges coming in. So in this practice, you still want to head towards absorption. You want to head towards giving as much of your attention to your breath as possible because it ends up uh, solving the problems of these challenges. But it can be helpful to know which challenge is present just so you have some perspective and then not be seduced by that challenge to giving up. And from that challenge state, say from this challenge state, I'm still going to uh, patiently dedicate myself towards the breath. So if you've heard this list before, it's the five hindrances, is a common list. You will have, uh, you'll be visited by these hindrances all the way through your path, and they're no sign of your, um, your worth or your capacity that you get visited by hindrances. So uh, that's wrong view if you harbor that. So please let go of that view. We all get visited by them. You'll see the teachers up here nodding out. <laughs> You'll see them fidgeting and looking at their watch. You know, we get visited by restlessness and sleepiness. So there are these five factors. Uh, one that you'll know quite well is uh, drowsiness, sleepiness, a sense of oppression by fatigue. That's what we call a sloth and torpor. It's actually two wrapped up in one. You can feel heavy in the body, you can feel heavy in the mind, and it's hard to be present when the mind feels burdened by fatigue or there's so little energy activated or freed up to practice with, that it's hard to be present. So all you have to do is notice, well, my mind is quite tired, and don't make a problem out of it. It's just right now the conditions are such that my mind and my body, or my mind or my body, are feeling uh, sleepy, are feeling heavy, they're feeling tired, and that's what these conditions are like. And from here, what do I do? I still see if I can feel my breath from a tired place. It's helpful if you say, yeah, I'm so tired, I'm probably not gonna have a stellar meditation experience. I'm not trying to have that from a tired place. I'm still seeing if I can use my breath as a resource to go through a tired experience. 
The opposite of being tired and fatigued is being uh, restless. It's where there's too much energy and your system is too shaken up. So we call that restlessness. Restlessness comes, it comes, it's its own weather. You did not create the fog, you did not create the clear sky. You, are, you don't take much responsibility for that unless you have a sort of megalomaniac uh, sense that you are God. And it's like, oh, of course I created the weather. You didn't. You don't take uh, credit for that. You shouldn't take credit for your restlessness. It's not your fault. It's conditions. You shouldn't take credit or too much responsibility for your sleepiness. It's just the conditions. What you can do is respond within those conditions to lower your suffering See if there's some type of contentment, even in that state, and then see if you can connect to breathing while you're restless. It's helpful just to say, wow, this is a very restless system, or just say the word restless, because then you know what you're working with, and this is a very agitated state. There's a lot of energy in this system. I'm gonna reconnect to my breath from this system, from this restlessness. There are, so those are two energetic states, too sleepy, too energetic. Um, there are two other states. One is the mind that craves what it doesn't have and the mind that hates what it does have. So there's the craving mind, and it's like, I don't like this present moment. What I would rather have is dot, dot, dot. Or I like this part of the present moment. I want that, but I don't want this other part. So the mind tends to be drawn towards something and it wants to hold on to it or pursue it. That's hard to be present with something like the breath if you're in a craving state for whatever you crave. You know, it could be uh, something more sensual, it could be something more fun, it could be something else than just the monotony of breathing. The breath feels monotonous when the mind is craving. The breath doesn't feel like it could be satisfying. It needs something greater than that. That's actually a state of mind, it's not a truth. It'll feel like a truth in that moment. The breath is not satisfying. The mind will say, to be satisfied, I really need to have something else. Have the sit I had before lunch. That would be good, this isn't good. It's good to know that you're in a state of mind, it's not a truth. You're in a craving mind And that's what you're working with, a mind that craves, and you can point back to the breath. Same thing with an averse mind. You can be in an averse mind and not know it because you really like judging. And when you're in the judging, it feels very righteous. It's like that person's breathing too loud, that person doesn't sit still, that person's sitting really still, but they seem kind of arrogant about it. (laughs) So I got everybody, and I'm seeing everybody through kind of a negative lens. And it's like, yeah. But do you know you're in an averse mind? And can you come back to your breath? If you're in an averse mind, probably being with your breath is difficult because you're cooking with unexamined uh, aversion. One time I was sitting on a hot day uh, on the East Coast at IMS. I was trying to settle myself. And this guy next to me had a cold, so irregularly he would snort every now and then to clear his throat. And I was just like, ah, my God, you have to stop. Ah, please. Okay, this is, okay, just don't judge him. It's like, oh, who is he? How could he do this? Like, doesn't he know what he's doing? So a lot of aversion, but it it felt right. (laughs) 
And I kind of liked it, so I was brewing it, and I was character assassinating him, and then I was, got in this mood, and I was looking around, I was like, ah, who are we? What are we trying to do here? And like, yeah, I'm with my breath, and I'm not making much headway, rah, rah, rah. And then I heard this dog walk by, and I couldn't see it, but I heard its little bell on its collar, and I'd heard that bell before. And I could picture the dog, because it was a neighborhood dog that was coming to sniff the flowers outside the windows, so I could picture the dog. And then my mind said, and even that goddamn dog. <laughs> and I love dogs. If you get to know me, even just a little bit, you'll know dogs have saved me. And then I've learned to relate to humans much later in life. But I would not be here in front of you if dogs had not saved me in some of the worst times of my life. So I have this like very devotional relationship to most dogs. So when I was hating on the dog, it suddenly occurred to me, I don't usually hate dogs. Humans, yes, but dogs? <laughs> and then there was this wake-up call, like, oh, I must be an aversion to hate a dog. Oh, yeah, that's why I'm hating everybody in the room. Oh, and as soon as I knew I had a wave of aversion, I was still cooking in it, but I was cooking with some awareness, like this is a challenging time to be, but if I lose perspective, I'm going to be swept up in this aversion. So just naming it at least helps you know what you're working with and how the breath is actually a way you can calm down your aversion eventually. And then there's this fifth hindrance, which is doubt. And it starts as a wavering, as a non-committal, you're not sure, a little bit baffled, a little bit unsure, should I do this, should I do that? They said this, but then they said that. So you don't actually do the simple practice, which is receive one breath at a time. It's amazing how we can wave around that. Should I receive one breath at a time? <laughs> I'm not so sure, because they said something last night, and I think I'm supposed to have more joy at this moment. <laughs> and so rather than do the practice, you start to hover and waver in your mind. And it's a sort of a non-committal, lost, slightly baffled state. But it can, be, it can be unpleasant, destabilizing enough that it can mix with craving. So you have a doubt, and it's like, I think Tibetans probably do this a lot better. And I heard of a Tibetan retreat so I'm doubting these people, I'm going to go on that other retreat, or I can't believe I'm here when I could be in Bali. And all my friends said, go to Bali, but I came to a retreat. I'm not so sure about this retreat. Maybe I should go surfing in Bali. So you can have the doubt that begins to tell a story that really uh, undermines your commitment to just do the simple practice as is. Again, it's good to know that there is doubt and you'll be visited by doubt. So when doubt comes, the sooner you recognize it as the hindrance of doubt, rather than a true evaluation, the better. On my very first retreat, they named these hindrances. And the first time I had doubt, I was doing walking meditation, and I got into this, like, what am I doing here? What are they talking about? I'm supposed to feel my feet, and that's going to solve my problems. And I, what a madhouse this is. Everybody's walking around creepy slow. And... <laughs> And I was like, oh, this is so confusing. And, and, and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I lean my head against the wall. And I was like, I, I, did, I made a bad choice. What is this? What's happening now? It's like, wow, there's so much doubt. And I remembered they said doubt would come. Doubt is coming. They said doubt was part of the path. I'm fucking on the path because I'm having <laughs> doubt. Mm. And I went from being lost and what did I do? And could this be a cult? 
to like a solid step right into the main of the path. I'm having doubt, and that's right on the path. So you can celebrate the hindrances. <laughs> no, I'm serious. It actually flips the script on them. It's like, yeah, everybody's having joy, but I'm having molten rage. And they told me <laughs> that's a totally valid path moment to be drenched in rage. I'm doing hindrances. You all do this absorption stuff. You don't have the courage to do the hindrances. I suffered a lot of doubt when I was in uh, Burma because I would have some days where I thought I was making headway. I would hope that this was the new normal. The headway would decay. I would get hindrances and then I would get a doubt bath. And the doubt bath would wear off and I was like, phew, I'm glad I didn't disrobe and fly home. It was just doubt. And then I would have some affirming experiences. And I was like, oh, thank God I didn't give up. And then that peak experience would fall apart and I would get hindrances again and I would get doubt. And so I thought, well, it's just going to be beat up by doubt. That's just, part of, that's just how I roll. And I talked to somebody, I said, you had enough faith to come here and be ordained. How come that doesn't visit you when you practice? And I said, well, I often don't put those two together. Um, they said, well, you should actually, you should inoculate yourself daily with faith so that you're not as easily uh, beset by doubt. And so I did a faith practice. I did a faith practice. I trust this path enough to take another step. And doubt will come. But when doubt comes, I will turn back to my faith in this practice rather than entertain doubt. And it was very helpful to keep it at bay. And finally, after a while, it was very hard to, for doubt to really get into my mind. Um, so these hindrances come, and you do have to work with them. If you have any perspective on them, and then go towards your breath humbly, go to your breath for refuge, the hindrances will pass. They are impermanent, they are difficulties, but they are solid experiences on the path, and you can be validated by them not discouraged by them. So we laughed about it, but you actually can turn that story around. It's like they said there'd be hindrances. By golly, I had hindrances. I'm right in the middle of what should be happening. You should be having hindrances. How many people have had hindrances? How many of you are failures? <laughs> Thank God all your hands went down. They come. And when you know they come, you don't take them so personally. You don't suffer so much over them. There's another perspective that takes time, and I would love to give you access to this uh, sooner than later. So I want to tell you a bit of a, I want to give you some imagery and then relate it to the practice we're doing here. I used to live on the shores of the Puget Sound north of Seattle, um, right on the water's edge. And by the time the water got to where I was, all the ocean waves had dispersed. So it was an inland waterway, so it was ocean water, but it didn't have any waves left in it because it uh, would have hit many shores coming inland. So on a windless day, there, was there were no waves on the surface of the water. And still the tide would roll in and roll out. So the waves don't actually mean anything about the tide. But we often th think that when the waves are rolling, oh, the tide's coming in. 
and somehow waves are connected to tides. They're actually two completely different phenomena, tides and wind, uh, uh, tides and waves. So some days I'd go out in a rowboat, totally glassy water, and the tide would be dropping six feet. And there'd be no surface indicator that that much water would be emptying back out into the Pacific. And if you caught the current of the tide, you couldn't tell by waves that something was happening. But by the time you came back to shore, the water level would have dropped. Same thing, you can go out on a low tide, no waves, come back and the water's risen. And there are days with a lot of waves. But what you're doing, especially in the beginning, but we torture ourselves all the way along by this. And even at, when, after 30 years of practice, I still mistakenly do this is I measure my practice by the current wave, and I don't measure the depth of the tide. So on this retreat, the tide is rolling in. You, the conditions are so good for, your, for the tide to roll in on this retreat, you all hardly have to row. You all hardly have to do anything but stay here and your samadhi will deepen. The conditions are that ripe for the deepening of your practice. But if you measure yourself by a wave, you will have a peak experience and then be heartbroken when it falls apart. And then another peak experience and be heartbroken when it falls apart. You'll come into an interview and it's just a roll of the dice. If you're heading into a peak experience, you'll come in like, I was born for this. (laughs) If your interview were an hour later, it's like, I'm the worst at this, it fell apart, I can't sustain it, I should leave. I don't mean to make too light of it because some people really suffer over this and I've suffered over this. So my heart goes out to you if you're in a particular hard self-assessment. But it is a way that we torment ourselves tremendously by practice and certain sits, we'll call them good sits, we'll like them, we'll, think, we'll be affirmed by them. They're a temporary condition. The, something grew in that time and that fell apart as it should but we take it personally, we evaluate ourselves on that and torment ourselves over that. But if you all went into town, you would see you're already in a type of samadhi that would make you unlike normal people. <laughs> and a lot of people would look at you strange and you look back and it's like, wow, you guys are moving really fast and you're kind of like busy and I'm not that busy and it's only It's only the third day, or end of the second, uh, third long day. That's the tide rolling in. And as you practice more and more, you have faith in the tide, and you're cultivating the tide of practice, not the waves. And you don't take the waves so personally. And that's what faith will give you, and that's a beautiful part of supporting yourself and why there's less suffering over the ups and downs of practice as you've seen over time, this practice, the tide just keeps rolling in and that's your well-being. And that's what really measures your well-being, not an individual wave up and down. So the sooner that becomes something you might know up here but don't know here, and the sooner you have faith that the practice will feel like waves and that's what a real practice feels like. It's very affected by conditions how your body agrees with the food you ate, how it affects your blood chemistry, how different hormones are working, all sorts of uh, the weather conditions, a high pressure system, a low pressure system, you don't even know is happening, but it impacts us. 
We're impacted by countless conditions. You can't control all those conditions. So there's going to be a lot of variation. But day by day, the tide generally rolls in. It will not feel like an escalator ride up, sort of smoothly going up. And we expect that, we suffer tremendously. That's what I was suffering a lot in Burma, is I kept waiting for something to kick in that I would then not retreat from or not fall below. And I was still in a conditional realm. I'd never broken free from it. So every fall from some peak experience brought grief and brought some type of torment. A few other things to say just about this. So there, you can take interest in these five hindrances, get to know them, these five jhana factors. If that suddenly complicates your mind and complicates the practice, it's not helpful because this practice um, is helpful when it feels simple. So only take the detail that your mind can handle and still feel like this is a simple experience. If this is starting, if this overly complicates things, then it doesn't support the underlying endeavor of samadhi, which is simplification and wholeness of attention. Another thing that it's helpful to hold with wisdom is that this practice will purify. So the hindrances can be seen through a lens that this is purification. So the visiting of a hindrance is not an old flaw in your system arising again, but actually something buried in your system that's being flushed out. And it flushes, it has to come out through your direct experience. So you have the seeds of doubt, you have the seeds of craving. And as you deepen your practice, craving will be flushed out, but it flushes out by erupting so due to no fault of your own, you might be practicing along and suddenly be flushed by a lot of heat or a lot of grief. You might grieve things that felt like you'd grieved it long ago. Your grieving might be quite intense. That's actually healthy and in terms of the long goal of the path, purification cycles are, they're healthy, they're good, but they're difficult. They usually feel like hindrances. So you may have come here for an absorption retreat but the conditions are right for you to have a purification retreat. And the sooner you align with that, the less you'll suffer over that, and the more you might see the benefit of flushing your system out. And in terms of actually making progress, peak experiences have been validating, but my purification retreats have removed so much inner toxicity that downstream in my life from a purification retreat, I was so much more uh, benefited than from a retreat that showed me peak experiences. Peak experiences can be obsessive. We can try to repeat them. They're their own struggle. They can be sort of validating and they can be transformative. I don't want to cast them in a negative light, but day for day when I've had a retreat that I was hoping was going to be benevolent, but the conditions were right for my system to go through a purification cycle where there was just a lot of unexplainable anger just erupting with this impatience and discontent no matter what I did. 
And I had teachers say, you're purifying, trust me, you're purifying. When I left the retreat, my heart had much more radiant, beautiful qualities. And then I realized in hindsight, that was a purification process. So when you find gold ore, it's gold mixed with a lot of other minerals. You heat it up, the gold melts before the other minerals and drops deeper into the crucible. So what you're looking at, the gold disappears and what's left is not gold, but then you slide that off and what went deeper into the crucible that was heated was pure gold. These conditions are so right that no matter what happens here, it's for your benefit. And we all have great faith in that. So if you are going through more purification, we'll support you in that because we know that that can be beneficial. If you're having retreat that's sort of generally deepening in samadhi, great, you're getting to know those factors. If you're having a retreat that's kind of tossing back and forth, it's like, great, you're getting to know that dynamic of the mind, the passage between the jhana factors arising and that they don't arise to stay. They are conditional. They arise out of conditions. And we can influence those conditions, but we can't control the jhana factors. When the jhana factors themselves start to get some momentum through cultivating their conditions and practicing them daily like we are, as they ripen, it gets harder for the hindrances to arise. So as there's more PT, more interest, there's less fatigue. As there's more sukha and contentment, there's less irritation. As you know how to get your needs met by one simple thing, you tend not to be as easily drawn into fantasy of craving. So every time you attend the breath, you are strengthening these jhana factors and they end up uh, they end up shielding the heart from old afflictive habits. And as they get stronger, you can go into very challenging circumstances and actually find yourself not buffeted by doubt or aversion, but you actually find my attention is whole even under stressful circumstances. That's why we practice samadhi, not for its own benefit, but it actually helps with these jhana factors so that when we go into interact with life, we have the support of the wholeness of our attention. Another very sneaky thing to watch out for is Dharma craving. So I could tell you all this one at a time in an interview, or I can tell you all once, you will all be seduced by Dharma craving and you'll suffer under it and not know that it's the torment of craving because the content is about the Dharma. I so want to be absorbed. I so wish I were more free. I so wish I were the person I think I could be. That sounds like Dharma aspiration, but it's tormenting. If you're tormented by what you don't have and what you don't have is some Dharma, some meditative state, some accomplishment, Somebody else has something that you don't. They, had, they were visited by joy and you weren't. And you start to crave that. It goes from an aspiration to a craving. When it crosses over in craving, it's a suffering state. But we buy into it as a story 
and then we torment ourselves with it. A lot of the time that I was ordained, part of the reason I went to ordain was Dharma craving. It wasn't a pure intention. There were some pure intentions to take whatever came with some faith, but I was also chasing peak experiences and I kind of hoped that they would happen uh, when I ordained. I thought there would be great conditions to have some really mega peak experiences that I could then boast at Dharma parties about, well, you think you are absorbed, whoa. <laughs> Let me tell you about selflessness. You don't know a thing about it. <laughs> I have the least ego. But I got tangled up in it and this, this deep yearning and trying to hold on to meditative states, and then suffering their decay, or uh, berating myself all the time for what was actually happening versus what I, I had some obsession of what could happen if I were a better yogi or had better teachers or had a better monastery or if it wasn't so hot in Burma, there weren't so many mosquitoes, it didn't rain so often, if the geckos didn't cluck in my, in my kuti, if the little beetle doesn't go off every afternoon like a fire bell, if, my, if the food agreed with me more, I would have something that I yearned for. And that was such a torment and such a block from actually being in the experience I was having. But I assumed the experiences I was having were not valid Dharma experiences. And so I suffered in them until that suffering stayed past. And luckily it was transient and I could see afterwards that that was Dharma craving, but I bought into it. And anytime you buy into craving, you suffer over it. But some cravings you already know to reject because they're so uh, unhelpful. But you should know when you're Dharma craving. And this practice is not, there's a lot of juicy tidbits floated out there about absorptions and joy like you've never felt before. And there's this lunge for it. And what else would you crave for than the beauty of the heart? So of course you're going to crave for it and try to cling to it when it happens. That, that's natural, but it's helpful to know that you're doing that so you don't multiply the suffering of craving for what you don't have and rejecting what you do have. And that again comes down to really being content with one breath at a time, authentically content, not content with a breath so that you can get to some juicy thing. Be content with one breath. And you'll know the difference when you're content with one breath because that's how you're gonna get something that you're chasing versus I'm actually so happy just to have a breath and that I'm not tormented by all these complications. That alone is the ending of craving or craving is not afflicting you there. So watch out for the, uh, the shiny objects of possibility and then tormenting yourself by not getting them or rejecting what you do have, because you might be in a spiritual purification cycle. That's also straight on the path. It's not a secondary path. You'll go through purification cycles. We've all been through them. We all will go through other ones. We have faith and we want to extend our faith and we want to grow faith in you that when purifications happen, that's a part of the path. And we have perspective on that. It tends to be a little extra grieving if you came here for uh, absorption states which have all these pleasant qualities 
and you ended up getting a purification retreat. So a lot of people suffer on that. And hopefully we can help you recognize there's so much benefit and well-being. And it's just not the retreat you thought you'd have, but those purification cycles happen. And they are a part of the waking up process. And this practice of samadhi will cause purification at some point. So when it happens, it's a natural part of the practice. With all these words said, as I said in the beginning, it might be a big diversity of ideas and stories and concepts, but it's just to put wind in your sails to refresh in and inspire your uh, practice for the next 24 hours. What I hope you'll aim towards is simplicity to be humbly connected to one breath at a time, not so that it will do something else. If you're with one breath at a time and then your mind wanders, those are the conditions. If you're with 10 breaths in a row and then your mind wanders, those are the conditions. We're cultivating and supporting the conditions of stabilizing our attention, but we're not gaining control over that. And we have enough days in here that you're very likely, the tide is rolling in and you can have faith in that. So that's what I would like to leave you with tonight. Try to practice in a way where contentment is more part of your experience and see if being with one breath at a time can be enough to be content in that moment that you are with one breath at a time. And then add, how many breaths in a row can I do this? But start with one breath at a time, giving it your whole heart humbly receiving one breath and then the next. So I encourage you all to do some walking in some cool air and then see if you have the energy to walk and then come back for one more sit. The late night sit is often a visitation of some hindrances. There can be some fatigue. 
without forcing it upon yourself, see if you can begin to welcome yourself into relying upon the practice for your well-being. So make the choice right now, or as soon as you go walking, of whether one more sit is within reach of today, and if not, enjoy your rest. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.